what I see today is an industry that is too homogeneous in its thinking and too focused on making money. And what I really hope, and the only way we're going to succeed is to really begin to pivot our industry into an industry that's more focused on healing and more focused on accessibility, more diversity, and bringing in a wider community into the conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. If I told you that today we were going to be speaking with a bald, recovering lawyer who is helping to build a beautiful, sustainable, and meaningful future through psychedelics, I wouldn't blame you if you thought I'd gone off the rocker and was about to make you listen to a podcast of me interviewing myself. Well, as I think about it more, I think interviewing myself is a great idea, but fortunately, my sanity lives to see another day, and instead, I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast Juan Pablo Capello, co-founder of New Life, a telehealth company specializing in ketamine therapy, and our new partners for Field Trip at Home. Juan Pablo was recently named one of the most influential Hispanics by Potter Magazine in the areas of science and technology, and was selected as a top 50 entrepreneur by Business Leader Magazine. In addition to New Life, he is a co-founder of The Lab Miami, Miami Angels, and PAG Law PLLC. As an attorney, he has been celebrated as Lawyer of the Year, as well as being a well-known entrepreneur who is deeply involved in supporting venture capital in Latin America. Juan Pablo's company, New Life, is carrying the torch for accessible, cutting-edge telehealth treatments, and we at Fieldtrip are really excited to be working alongside them. Juan Pablo, I'm so glad to have you join us today and welcome to Field Tripping. Great, aka Doppelgammer, as the Germans say, the twin. So yes, it's great. <laughs> great to be on here with you. Uh, thanks, man. It's good to, good to have you on. Uh, I love also the fact that uh, Damien, your partner, is also aerodynamic as well. We're, we're really, we're making a good case for Bald is Beautiful as, as a collective collective group. So thank you for being a part of that team as well. You are here in Toronto. Right now, you're calling in from Marrakesh, which is super cool. And it sounds like you're having an amazing time. But when you were here in Toronto a couple of weeks ago, we got to chat a little bit about your story growing up, which I found was super fascinating. Can you tell us a, a little bit of your history, uh, how you grew up, and, and what ultimately led you to where you are now? Sure. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll try to make 10 years in a few minutes. My mother's American. She um, took Timothy Leary's advice turned on, tuned in, and dropped out at 18. She went to Northwestern, got pregnant with me, young, and bravely ran off to Chile in search of you know, love and adventure and discovering herself. I was raised by her and my father, who was a Chilean grad student, who knocked up my mom um, as a freshman. She, I was raised, yeah, on, a, on sort of a, a, sort of like a farm, in a, in a very 60s kind of way. Chile was just was electing socialist president. Um, my mom taught Ashtanga yoga, taught TM, transcendental meditation. I was raised a Quaker. It was really, you know, a beautiful life. When I was six, there was a military coup. I got separated from my mom because of uh, her politics and some other reasons. My native, my indigenous or mestizo grandmother, you know, sort of exposed me to the native traditions. You know, that included the the desert in the north of Chile's called San Pedro de Atacama, the Atacama Desert, known as the driest desert in the world. 
It's known as San Pedro de Atacama because that's where the indigenous people would sit in ceremony with the mescaline containing San Pedro cactus, of which today there are seven varieties. And at least the local history is there was an eighth variety that grew uniquely and only in the San Pedro de Atacama desert, which was the strongest of all of the varieties, um, much stronger than the Ecuadorian variety, which exists today and is reputed to be the strongest. And the Spanish conquistadores made sure that that was you know, harvested and burned into extinction. Yeah, I've always had this very interesting sort of living in two cultures, and you know, spent my my youth in in Santiago under the auspices of my dad and my grandmother and her four sisters. So it's really it's really a beautiful way to grow up. Thank you for sharing that. Um, one question: Was your mom actually inspired by Timothy Timothy Leary's word of turn on tune tune in turn on tune and drop out, or or was that just kind of a, a post narrative added to the story because it was also consistent with her her worldview? I think there was a measure that she probably didn't mean to get pregnant um, quite so young. And then, you know, you back into a, a narrative. But yeah, I mean, and, and it's interesting because with my, my grandmother's really been an inspiration for the two main companies I've, I've helped build. So the first company I built, we built the first online bank in Latin America, and we sold that for $700 million to Banco Santander. It's called Patagon.com. And that really taught me a huge lesson as to what not to do the rest of my life, which was I, I would always, on Fridays, every other Friday, my, mom, my grandmother would get a sort of the equivalent of a $70 pension check. And we'd have to ride the bus into downtown Santiago, wait in an hour and a half to two hour line in the pension office. Then maybe she'd buy me an ice cream. Then we'd have to wait two hours, an hour to two hours in a line to deposit the check for a grand total of $70. And I just thought in the early 2000s or, or late 90s, actually, wow, should, we should be able to leverage technology to help somebody like my grandmother have a more dignified experience, you know, the lower middle class in the region. And what ended up happening was when we started raising money, we had this sort of mission drift where we wanted to be, you know, a bank to solve, to, you know, offer people lower down on the pyramid an opportunity to have a more dignified human interaction at the bank. Investors wanted us to be the E-Trade for Latin America. And we were young. We were all in our 20s, early 30s. And we sort of let the money dictate what we became. And it was sort of watching the tail wag the dog. And so we had this really unusual situation where we sell the company for lots of money. We made money ourselves. We made our investors 100, 200x. But it was an extremely empty feeling because at the end of the day, other than our investors and the employees, we didn't improve or change anyone's lives. And so here we are almost exactly 20 years later when we were starting New Life. And we just really felt committed to making sure that win, lose, or draw over the long term, even if the company doesn't succeed, that we wanted to really build an intentional company that was going to change people's lives well outside of just the employees and the um, management team's lives. 
And so, yeah, it's been a bit more than a year. Super excited that we're partnering with companies as mission aligned as, as Field Trip and um, working every day to accomplish what we never accomplished at Patagon, which is helping people improve their lives and their outlook. So thank you so much for creating this space. Oh, oh, I mean, thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for partnering with us. It definitely is a, I think like a, a partnership born in, in the right ideals with you know, very aligned people and, and good people. And, and that matters a lot. It's not just about, you know, you can do the right thing. Uh, you can do the right thing alone. You can do the right thing with bad partners. You can do the right thing with good partners. And, and doing the latter is definitely the way to go. And certainly we have the foundation for for that uh, in, in the relationship that's burgeoning between Field Trip and New Life, uh, but also, you know, interpersonally with you guys as well. Like I, I feel a deep rapport for each of you and and, and when you said before about uh, taking a lesson about how not to live your life, I totally thought you were going to say uh, becoming a lawyer is a good lesson <laughs> on how not to live your life. But I was going to say, yeah, youth is wasted on the young. So I figure I uh, <laughs> wasted, misspent some of my youth in law school, but you know, trying to make up for it later in life. There you go. I, my, my corollary to that is youth is wasted on the young and wealth is wasted <laughs> on the old. Um, but uh, not always. So, so a couple of thoughts. So you got exposed at a young age uh, to sing mm-hmm. ceremony, you know, with a, and I'm not even going to attempt to put proper accents on it, but, with, but the San Pedro cactus. Tell me, tell me about that. Like what, what was the insight? Was it just normalized? Was it just part of the culture and the community? And, and it wasn't such a shocking thing? Because certainly I'm sure as you transplanted to the US and people thought about psychedelics and mescaline, there probably was a level of you know, a uh, horrific response of, of psychedelics because I don't know exactly how old you are, but I'm guessing you're ballpark right around the same age as us, given similar hairstyles. 55. Okay. You're, you're a little bit older than me then, but what was the experience experiencing that as a child? And what was that experience kind of taking those insights uh, into the U.S. where the culture is probably very different, particularly when, when you relocated? So we really have to keep in mind that there's the traditions of the South sort of under the condor. And they obviously vary, but sort of the indigenous bird of, of the Southern Cone and the traditions of the North under the eagle. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting. And I think if people who participate in ceremonies really appreciated and understood a little bit of the history behind the rituals, um, it would be very much more meaningful to them. And in fact, we also have to understand that with this ceremonial tourism, plant medicine tourism, we're very, we're very much as Westerners distorting the native traditions. And I'm not saying that's inherently bad, that we should also understand what we're doing. So to answer your question, what we have to understand is in general, and obviously there's thousands of tribes and hundreds of traditions, but if you look generally at the traditions of the South under the condor, the indigenous people of the South, the shaman, the curandero, is basically connecting with the spirit world. And it is the curandero who's taking the vast majority of the medicine, and he's stepping through the gates of reality into this other world. And it's, I think, there, there was an evolution of those traditions to fit in with Catholicism. So if you think about Catholicism traditionally, especially before Vatican II, you had the priest speaking in Latin with his back to the parishioners sort of as a segue to God. 
And so it was almost, he was speaking on behalf of the parishioners to God. God was communicating to him and, th- and through the church to the, to the, the people. And so the traditions of the South, which quite honestly, most Westerners aren't super comfortable with because it seems hokey, et cetera, was more like, is more that. And so what happens in many of the traditional ceremonies, and certainly you know, with my, my grandmother's family or tribe, was precisely that, that it was a curandero who would take copious amounts of medicine. Everyone else would get a taste. So, you know, they'd be sort of in the moment and present and let the medicine do its work, Um, but very small. And that's what I find very sort of interesting that so many Westerners, when they go to Peru or Ecuador, Colombia, they're very drawn to ayahuasca because, you know, ayahuasca makes you, the Westerner, the center of the conversation. And everyone comes back like, oh, Mother Ayahuasca was talking to me, you know, because of course me is the most important thing, as opposed to really, you know, what what ends up happening with more mescaline-based ceremonies is it becomes much more about the we, the community. And so if you don't mind me just taking a second to juxtapose the traditions of the South with the traditions of the North, which, you know, traditionally have been around peyote, not San Pedro and ayahuasca, we have to remember that the traditions of the North had been completely lost at the end of the Native American wars, where the indigenous people of the North had seen their numbers go down from contact 1492 to the 1880s by 90 to 95%. So this was really, these were really defeated people who had lost their way of life, their traditions, their language, everything, um, their lands. And they were on reservations and they reimagined after the ghost dance, which was a celebration that the Bureau of Indian Affairs sort of took as a sign of impending revolt. And they killed 300 Lakota men, women, and children at Wounded Knee. What the indigenous people of the North started doing was celebrating very quietly these ceremonies within the teepee at night, one drum beating and just a fire and much smaller ceremonies and much quieter ceremonies. And what I find beautiful as somebody who was raised and exposed to the traditions of the South, as I've gotten to know the traditions of the North, particularly the Lakota traditions and the you know, with vision quests and sun dances, et cetera, is those traditions of the North are all about deep healing. And they aren't about this, the individual per se. And they're not about the curandero sort of leading the way. It's really the community coming together and sharing songs. And in those traditions, you sit in a circle. Everyone is encouraged to sing four songs. The, they're all night ceremonies. The medicine gets passed four times. The instruments get passed four times and everyone's encouraged to participate. So it's much more of this healing community event, whereas quite honestly, the traditions, the traditional traditions of the South that I was exposed to, I don't want to say it was like going to church because that would be quite, you know, sitting out in the desert in the north of Chile in the Valley of the Moon and El Valle de la Luna is certainly not like going to, you know, traditional Catholic mass that my grandmother went to on Sundays and she found no problem with celebrating her native traditions on Saturday evening 
and rolling into church to sing in the choir on Sunday. But I just am mentioning that, you know, it's sort of the more you dig into the history of these traditions and don't just sort of think that, hey, um, I'm going to be spiritual because I'm going to roll down to Ecuador or Peru and I'm going to bring a lot of clothes that don't have buttons or zippers on them. And this is how I'm really going to, you know, connect. I think, you know, you can get a lot more out of these experiences if you dig in just a little bit into the history, because the history is fascinating. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. It's one of those things that even like I, I, I think I struggle with a, a little bit, which is wanting to be myself during these experiences and bringing my insights and awareness to it. Uh, but also, and and that's obviously been shaped by a very Western kind of traditional North American upbringing. Uh, while at the same time, recognizing the spiritual importance of of ceremony and 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 the history of all of that, and also being aware of being uh, an observer, you know, I'm I'm never going to have the, the 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 traditional history of that. So there's a whole bunch of dynamics at, at play that aren't always easy to kind of reconcile. But I do. You know, just even the way you're speaking about it, the the energy and and the passion and, and really the spirit of how we talk about that, it's like it's 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 infectious. And how could you not want to you know lean into that and try and as much as possible immerse yourself into that as opposed to as you said, you know, just coming down being like I'm traditional because I don't have buttons or zippers on my shirt. Which for the record, I'm so I guess disconnected from even that conversation. I didn't even know that was a thing. But yeah, no, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's it's all of these things that create so much complexity. You know, layered into all of the dialogue and stigma and 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 politics that goes around it as well. It's it's there's so much depth to to go down in, in that respect. When you when you came, at what age did you move to to the U.S.? I got reunited with my mother in Puerto Rico. Um, then we moved back to Chile, and I I came to the U.S. for my last couple of years of high school. And, and then stayed and then went back to Chile. Yeah, but going to what you said, we, um, we started a Native American church in South Florida about 10 years ago. And, and that's, a, that's a very interesting conversation because there's this Freedom of Restoration Act, which in theory creates you know, a legal framework for Native American churches to operate throughout the United States. What we found is the DEA um, has created a regulatory framework basically to, in practice, undo the law. Um, we've been operating, you know, in plain sight for 10 years, um, but we're, you know, sort of considering, uh, given a recent very, you know, prejudicial denial of a church called SoulQuest in Central Florida of their DEA exemption, you know, we've, we're, we're considering, you know, sort of actively taking on the DEA. To this day, notwithstanding, you know, the incredible damage that the U.S. government has done, has brought upon, you know, the indigenous and native people of the North and, you know, really helped, you know, had a policy of destroying their traditions. I mean, you may know that the policy of the U.S. government and the Spanish government vis-a-vis indigenous people is always the same. You come into contact with indigenous tribe. You kill the spiritual leader, i.e. the medicine man, shaman, curandero, and you negotiate with the chief. And if he won't play ball, you install basically a puppet government of the tribe down the river 
who is willing to play ball with you. That's how it started. And then in the early um, 20th century, you know, the U.S. government had this policy of you essentially have to, you know, kill the Indian to save the child, basically putting hundreds and thousands of indigenous children into boarding schools to, you know, essentially, you know, Americanize them or Westernize them. And notwithstanding, those policies were shown for what they were incredibly prejudicial 100 years ago. We're still dealing with a government which isn't allowing, you know, spiritual, truly spiritual people to engage in, you know, extremely long traditions of spiritual and religious practice and be able to do that out in the open. That I'm not suggesting that there aren't problems with some of the underground practices of these traditions. There certainly are. But like most of the conversation around illicit drug use, the biggest problem and the biggest risks with, the, with traditional indigenous ceremonies is most people who are participating in them are doing something illegal. And it's that illegality, which is bringing 98% of the problems that are existing to the table. And if, you know, if this country could actually just respect, you know, the freedom of religion, which is one of the tenets of the United States, we would be able to practice these ceremonies out in the open and be healing hundreds of thousands of people every weekend, which is, you know, a real shame. A hundred percent agreed. I'm curious to know if you don't mind sharing the, the name of the church that you established, the Native American church that you established, what is the nature of the the, the ceremony? Is it, is it more grounded in, in, you know, the condor tradition or the eagle tradition? And then C, which is a little bit more of a philosophical question, is ignoring, because you and I certainly share the viewpoint that psychedelic therapies, very loosely defined, have the potential to change hundreds of thousands, millions, in fact, billions of lives. Um, so we share that viewpoint. But I also understand the argument that if you take the viewpoint that, okay, if this is a cultural, ceremonial, historical practice that we're protecting, then Joe Average white folks like myself who have no historic nexus to that practice, we're just going to have fun. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm choosing my words poorly a little bit intentionally to try and establish like the contrast of what the argument would be. You know, how do, how do you, how do you address that? Because I think, again, you and I are probably aligned being like, everyone should have access to this as long as it's done properly and thoughtfully and, and constructively. Um, but if we're going to say like, okay, but the policy is it should be a spiritual thing, then who's spiritual in, in that context? I'd say that as soon as the government starts trying to make those decisions for us, we're sort of, yeah, we're lost, right? But but what I would say, I would just point out, I would point out a few things, right? So there is a real conversation to be had about the sustainability of peyote. And I definitely come down on the side that peyote itself should be reserved only for indigenous use, given, as some people in your audience may not know, it takes about 10 to 15 years for a peyote button to grow and to be in a position where it could be harvested. Most of the peyote, which is harvested, is not harvested in a sort of intentional way. If you harvest it intentionally, carefully, the button can regenerate 
from the root and you can maybe save half the growth cycle. And the most mature peyote buttons are 50 to 70 years old. That's when they get 13 points on them. Just like the conversation around, you know, the Sonoran Desert Toad, where there isn't really traditional use, but we really have to think thoughtfully about the long-term sustainability. Same thing with peyote. That being said, anyone who sat through any traditional indigenous ceremonies knows that it is unlike anything, like spending any time on the playa at Burning Man or at a festival having a great time. So our ceremonies are, uh, we work with San Pedro. We're following more the traditions of the North. Um, We are greatly inspired by the amazing work that uh, Lakota medicine man, Leonard Crowdog, did. I'm happy to talk about his family lineage. It's fascinating. And so we follow the traditions of the North. We sit all night in ceremony, no water, hopefully not even standing up all night. The Lakota tradition, you actually kneel all night. That's probably a little too much for somebody who didn't grow up in those traditions. But our ceremonies go from about 8, 9 p.m. until 9 or 10 in the morning and then are followed often by a sweat lodge. And so these ceremonies, extremely rigorous, difficult physically, meant to be difficult, and extremely, extremely fulfilling. Ceremonies, as you know, around ayahuasca, I think no one has ever considered taking ayahuasca as, you know, the pregame to a party. A walk in the park. Exactly, a walk in the park. And and quite honestly, I've, I've recently done in Jamaica some um, psilocybin retreat in in a traditional psilocybin context. And I found those experiences very, very spiritual. They were less of a ceremony and more of a celebration. But, you know, we sat for five, six, seven hours in a circle, music playing, chanting. But all of these are deeply connected, grounded experiences most people, just like after they have you know, ketamine experiences, psilocybin experiences at Johns Hopkins, et cetera, you know, a huge percentage of people will rate them as one of the five most important spiritual experiences of their lives. You know, again, just because, you know, like most things, you know, they can be used as a sacrament as well as for enjoyment. That shouldn't, from my perspective, take away from the the fact that it's a really spiritual you know, undertaking. And, and again, our, the traditions that we follow are extremely rigorous to the point where, yes, there's many nights that I'm sitting in ceremony where I'm like, what, what time is it? I, I, why, why aren't I in bed? Just sleeping in a nice, comfortable bed rather than sitting out here. But then when you think about these traditions, even though they're not uninterrupted, they've found peyote buttons in South Dakota that are fossilized five to 7,000 years old. And you think about how many hundreds of generations of people were sitting outside in a circle you know, with these ceremonial chalices. They found these ceremonial chalices with peyote buttons inside. So they know people... We're using them in, in this way. And you just think about this sort of deep human connection that you're part of. And again, the more you understand the traditions, the less you think it's about you and your daily entanglements and problems, the more you can get out of these traditions and just realize that they're absolutely, they can be absolutely transformative. 
to sort of segue to where we are today, what I realized is we started by thinking, how could we help a million people heal the root cause of their suffering and disease coming out of COVID, right? I sort of, everyone I knew was impacted their mental health, their mental well-being directly coming out of COVID. And so many people I knew had, you know, had loved ones who were dealing with serious mental issues you know, on suicide watch, bipolar, you know, that they had just spiraled. And what I realized, unfortunately, was we could not scale the Native American church model in a way that could help, you know, even a thousand people, let alone a million. And so we began to look at the medicinal model and saw, you know, leaders in the space like you who had already launched and were doing incredible things in terms of healing and really began to think, how do we complement what's being done in, in such a way? Because obviously no company is going to be able to serve sort of all of the needs. And so how can we complement what's being done in the space and really, you know, try to start building an ecosystem, which is collaborative rather than what often happens in a gold rush, which people are just trying to claim territory for their own. And we began to see some of that. And we just decided, let's try to play a very different game here. I have a few questions, but let's, let's shift on talking about ketamine and, and, and new life. Um, what, was, what was like the initiation of the, the conversation? How did this idea come up in the first place? Who, who, who came up with the idea? There's a, a, certainly within the psychedelic community, a lot of concern about the idea of telehealth psychedelic therapies you know, providing ketamine at home instead of in a, in a clinical setting. And, you know, the reason that Field Trip partnered with New Life to create Field Trip at home is because, you know, we are mission aligned. We're very focused on on quality experiences safely and, and thoughtfully curated. At, at a certain point, I imagine you had to wrestle with the idea of, is this safe? Is this a good idea to be actually doing it like this? And, and certainly put in protocols. But yeah, take me through like the... You talked with a million people, but like, where, where, what was that moment of inspiration when you're like, yes, that, that this is this is something that is worth pursuing? And then, B, how did you wrestle with, you know, some of the the moral and ethical and, and medical implications with ketamine? Yeah, great question. So, um, my mother would always say, the quality of your life is in direct proportion with the quality of the questions you're willing to ask yourself. Ask yourself better, deeper questions. You're going to have a better, deeper life. And I was. chatting with my mom, basically saying, yeah, when psilocybin becomes legal, there's so much good to be done when psilocybin becomes legal. And my mom said, hey, you don't think people are suffering today? What do you think you could do today? You know, what if you didn't wait? What would you do? And it really just sent me down the rabbit hole. And I began thinking, okay, what did I learn from our company, Patagon? We got to you know, serve a greater community well beyond ourselves as founders and, and employees and investors and just began sort of working on it. And then I began asking myself, how would I help? And, and again, at Maps and Rick Doblin, incredible work, but they're being pushed for MDMA into a protocol which is you know, very intensive in terms of you know the medical staff, et cetera, where the cost I'm hearing is between seven to twelve thousand dollars per treatment. And I said, okay, I don't want to build a company just for affluent people. One of the problems in tech generally is, you know, last year I'm sure you saw 
fewer than 2% of venture capital dollars went to female-led companies, less than 1% to founders of color. And so just began thinking, how would we lower the cost of existing therapies by 60 to 70% and try to maintain the standard of care? Appreciating that that's going to allow us to maybe serve a demographic, which is less affluent, but a smaller percentage of patients because we're going to have to screen more carefully. And so what we've done to date is only uh, fewer than 25% of prospective patients who get on the phone with a medical provider end up being invited into our program. And that's after we put patients through some qualifying questions. So even that 25% is once they actually have been somewhat pre-screened and the patients who are invited into our program have on average spoken with our medical team for 45 minutes. And so what we realized is by having significant screening, making sure given the safety profile of ketamine that our patients are having a physical sitter with them and through our app have the ability to have a virtual sitter accompanying them, we've been able to facilitate over 40,000 ketamine experiences and 911 has only been called once. That was a, with a patient, virtually all, we track every outcome. And so we've had very, very few negative outcomes. Only once you know, it, it, it was EMS called. That patient had misrepresented their medical history and it actually, the following week, tried to re-enroll in our program because the patient said that nothing, after years and years of suffering from debilitating mental illness, depression, anxiety, nothing had lifted the patient's spirit the way our therapy did. Obviously, we couldn't take the patient back in. And, and one quick thing about even assuring that there's a sitter, somebody accompanying our patients on their journey, not only we have pre-experience sessions and aftercare and integration, et cetera, all as part of our program, but patients need to upload a photo that they take through the app. So they can't just, you know, sort of upload any photo. Um, patients need to go through the experience through right. the app. What we do is we send one dose, as you know, the protocol is generally six doses. So we send one dose of ketamine to the patient's house, a low dose, we call it a discovery dose. The patient has to comply with all our protocols to get the next two doses. And our protocols include, they have to do the experience through the app. We curate the music where, you know, if, if the patient has um, given us access to the wearables, we're able to monitor how they're doing. And the most important thing is they need to upload a photo that's taken through our app with the patient, the sitter's ID, and actually an image of the ketamine that they're taking. So that way we have very close control as to what our patients are doing. Assuming patient complies with the, all of the protocols, they get the next two doses and assuming they comply with all of the protocols again, they get their final three doses. And so we're constantly monitoring and keeping track of our patients. But we recognize, and that's why we're so excited to partner with Field Trip, certainly there's a lot, a significant percentage of patients who the inpatient model is going to work better for. But the reality is not all patients are going to be near a location 
so that they're going to have geographical proximity issues, and they're not going to have an ability to pay what the inpatient protocol it costs. And so our view is, and this is why we're so excited to work with you all, there's certainly patients that are going to prefer to have all six experiences in a clinic. Some patients will prefer a hybrid where maybe they do the first couple of experiences in a clinic, the final experiences at home. And then there's other patients because of how they're wired, et cetera, and it may be a minority of patients where the at-home model is really what makes most sense for them. So we're just trying to, as I said, very deliberately really think about the universe of people who these therapies could, could work for and really thinking how do we you know, make these available to the affluent urban dwellers as well as you know, people maybe who are working class in more rural settings and everything in between. Yeah, no, I, I think that's awesome. And it's, it's a incredibly well-considered process to, to manage you know, the, the risk, admittedly low risk, but the not zero risk. And, and so I think the, the way you've structured that is, is great. And that's exactly the reason that we, we chose to partner w- with you on this project. Why, um, of the 75% of people who don't get accepted into the program, what are the typical reasons for that? And for the people who do get accepted into the program, you know, do you have any advice on how to maximize the impact of the experience at home, creating this right set and setting and, and anything along those lines? And is there any training provided for uh, the sitters? Um, because as much as your mom or a friend, maybe someone you trust greatly, certainly a mom knows how to say something that can really trigger <laughs> you um, sometimes. So, um. the, the, medical, the medical staff you know, really makes a determination. And I think what we're, we're looking for isn't just pre-qualified. Obviously, people get pre-qualified out for certain you know, suicidal ideation, weapon at home, you know, certain things that are sort of hard nose. But what our medical team, we've really tried to work hard to incentivize our team, whether it's our welcome team, our, our um, medical team, not to focus on you know, making sales, but really focus on patients that we think are going to have the best outcomes under our program and really incentivize the team based on outcomes. We'd really have to let them, the medical team, sort of speak about how they balance that. But I'm not at all focused on sort of the percentage of patients being invited to the program or trying to up that in any way. Quite honestly, if it went over a certain percentage, I might get I might get alarmed where it is today feels right and maybe it'll go up over time as we get more data in terms of our patients. In terms of the sitters, Thankfully, as you know, ketamine being a bit of a dissociative and at higher doses and anesthesia, as opposed to, say, if, if people were going through therapy with MDMA or psilocybin, where there might be some exploring, maybe even dancing <laughs> wanting to be done, um, our patients, just like your patients, tend to want to just lie down, put on eye shades, listen to this curated playlist, and have a blissful almost lucid dream kind of experience. So for the sitters, 99% of the time, there's very little to do. They do take a short course online. Uh, We're buttressing that course to make it, and this was thanks to um, the encouragement of Field Trip and uh, its general counsel, buttressing a bit of the the sitter training. So, So we're doing that. 
But again, what we're able to do since we're tracking outcomes, what we find, as is often the case in life, 50% of what we think we know is in, in fact correct or isn't quite correct. The issue is we don't quite know what that 50% is. And so some of the, the protocols that you and I might just intellectually think would actually lead to better patient outcomes actually don't. What I would point out, I think, just like field trip, what we're really trying to do is heal the root cause of patients suffering and disease or anxiety, rather than just trying to substitute daily antidepressants or anti-anxiety meds for monthly or quarterly ketamine treatments. What we're focused on, and this is, I think, one of the main qualifying um, points is we try to stress to prospective patients that this is work, that the ketamine is going to do an extremely good job to elevate your mental well-being, to maybe blast you out of the hole that you're in, that you just can't get yourself out of. But the reality is, if the patient isn't willing to do the hard work, they're going to have a window of two weeks to two months to do the work. If they don't do the work, almost invariably, they're going to end up where they were. And that's going to feel like yo-yo dieting. We do not want to put patients on a sort of emotional equivalent of yo-yo dieting. That's why we're so focused on the integration and aftercare. And that's really what we're working very hard to continue to build out to allow our our patients to really think of the ketamine as the beginning of that healing journey. And hopefully we can help our patients do the work so the vast majority of them don't have to come back and do more ketamine. I mean, if they need to from time to time, and that's okay too, but that's not sort of the core of the business that we're building. And I'm very proud about that. And I know philosophically feel much the same way. It came to me recently. We, we had, had an event uh, in Los Angeles uh, a few weeks ago or maybe months ago. I've lost track of time. Uh, <laughs> we were talking about intention, insight, and integration. And, and what I realized is people talk about that as kind of like distinct parts of the process. And what I realized is that each one of those, it's, 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 a, it's a continuum and they're lifelong. Uh, they're lifelong commitments, right? Like the insight that, uh, or the intention that you set should be informed by all the work you've done up to that point in your life. The insights that will come out of the experience will be informed by the intention that you set. And the integration is something that you take with you all the time. And whatever you're integrating should flow back into the intention that you set uh, that takes you to the insight. And it's just a circular thing. And, and the truth is, all of life is actually that. That defines all of life, but it becomes particularly germane in this context when people see it as it's work. You know, it, it really is work. That doing the work, I mean, even in these native ceremonies, what you realize is showing up and sitting down and drinking the medicine. Yeah, that's only the beginning of the work, right? And then sitting there all night and going back to the medicine. And then in the morning, you know, you just want to sleep and you finally get some water. You know, there's no water. And then there's the sweat lodge. And I mean, I never, believe me, I never want to do that work. I've always said, oh, can't one of my daughters call me now and you know, tell me she needs me because <laughs> I just don't want to do that work. And you go in and you do that work 
And you just realize there's a, there's a healing process in doing the work. And I think we're all in this space, you know, and regardless of, you know, are we in the medicinal context working with, you know, ketamine, um, as you know, we see new compounds, novel compounds. I know, you know part of field trips been working on novel compounds, those coming online. And what I just keep stressing to people is this is so exciting what's going on, but it isn't taking away from the fact that there's real work to be done. And what these, you know, what I view all of these compounds as doing is helping open doors that maybe were stuck and removing barriers or boulders that might have been standing in the path that wasn't allowing people to move forward. But again, I, I think you know, we have to be careful as an industry or as a movement to sort of oversell the powers that these, these compounds, from my perspective, for most people, don't fix them, don't heal them, don't solve the problems. What they do is they can help reframe a lot of issues, fix a, a lot of, re, yeah, just allow people to make progress very quickly they couldn't otherwise make. They, they say, uh, I think it's Tom Robbins who said, if there's one thing about money, one thing you can say about money, it can make you rich. And if there's one thing you can say about psychedelics, they're going to open your eyes. What you do <laughs> with that insider awareness, you know, that's, uh, that, that's up to you. Um, and it's totally, uh, I think, germane to this conversation. Out of curiosity, have you ever had a, a ketamine experience? And, uh, you know, if you have, you had a psilocybin experience recently, Mm-hmm. You know, in, in Jamaica, clearly sat with San Pedro uh, as part of the church. How do how do you think about them differently in terms of if I'm if I'm a person who's like this is interesting. I know I've got stuff to work on, whether I've been clinically diagnosed or just as depressed, or it's like I just want to. I really want to lean into like the spiritual personal growth. You know, if you were going to describe them to a person who's just an initiate, how would you describe the different experiences? I think it's, well, so much is set in setting, right? So psilocybin concert or on the playa at Burning Man is a very different experience than an intentional. So what I'm going to talk about is really intentional experiences, right? So you're sitting down, the set in setting is about healing. There's a container that's been created. This is not in any way recreational. And I think my my experience in, of uh, least experience with ketamine, just because you know, for me, six sessions, that phrase from Alan Watts, that, you know, once you speak to God, he said this about LSD, you can put down the phone. You don't need to keep calling him. And so while I've sat in the indigenous traditions hundreds of times, just because that for me is almost like going to church, rarely more than once a month, but just for, for decades, yeah, so so my view is what we're going to find is some of these compounds are better. We're going to find as we get more data and as they're more widely available and data is tracked, that some of these compounds might be quite good for people who are struggling with you know childhood sexual abuse, right? And that may be ketamine, whereas psilocybin may prove itself extremely useful for people who are facing end of life kind of issues, which Roland Griffin and our friends at Johns Hopkins have focused on. And that psilocybin might help people deal with the loss of a loved one and grieving and accelerate the, the stages of grieving. And so my view is today, what we have available legally is ketamine. It's proven itself to be sort of 
an all-purpose healer, or at least resetter. As I said, for most people at a mystical dose, which is sort of where you need to get to, it's a bit like a lucid dream, but most people have, you know, it's a, it's for most people at the right dose, it's a fairly controlled experience. The issue is that it can be hard to hold on to a little bit. Like when you wake up from a dream that it feels almost like the tide you know, it seems very real right as you wake up. And a few seconds later, it's as if that tide went out and took a lot of the details away. And that's why it's quite important with ketamine to start the integration and aftercare quite quickly. But there is definitely neuroplasticity that occurs with ketamine as it does with psilocybin and MDMA. MDMA, in my experience, has been, and I've experienced it more in a, um, traditional healing kind of setting. I've never experienced it outside of that setting. A little bit more body, more heart opening, less mental. Yeah. Psilocybin, less body, you know, more at, at, at a certain dose, more feeling like the universe is, is being unlocked and there's planes of, of existence that are, are being opened up. They're, 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 I think they can all be complementary. And as I say, right now, we're just we're in the early, early days. And what we're trying to do is capture data, make that data available, you know, work with, with partners like you all. You all are certainly helping us elevate our standard of care. And we're hoping to help you all you know, sort of elevate the kind of data that you're c- capturing. And the more that we see these kinds of collaborations in the industry, the more that rather than this becoming a gold rush where everyone's trying to sort of elbow their way to the trough and and keep other people from getting what they what you know what their their share my view is there's 12 billion people on this planet virtually all of whom lives would be improved if they had access to some of these kinds of therapies and what we really need to do as a movement is really elevate the conversation share the data help people open their minds and their hearts and we can we can make tremendous progress totally one final question before i'll let you get back to uh your life uh <laughs> vacation in, in marrakesh which is um a friend of mine cameron harold who is the coo at 1-800 got junk i don't know if it was his exercise that he developed or or whether he modified it but he does this exercise with entrepreneurs called the painted picture, which is, you know, you paint a picture five years out as detailed as possible. And then you kind of take one day before five years out being like, what had to happen on that day to get to, you know, five years and you go two days back and three days back, maybe not quite as granular, but you know, you kind of paint a picture and then you work backwards from that picture to figure out your plan going forward. So my question to you as a fellow aerodynamic entrepreneur uh, in uh, the emerging psychedelic space. Paint the picture, the five-year picture of what happens. What, 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 what does the world look like in five years in terms of this industry? And if we do everything that we hope we can do, how is the world different in, in five years in your mind? Yeah, so in five years, Brom from Empath Ventures often mentions that the most transformative compounds probably haven't been invented yet. I mean, if you think about it, ketamine's been around for 50 years. LSD was synthesized in the 20s and sort of rediscovered in the late 30s. 
MDMA, Sasha Shogun, he revisited it because it already had been synthesized also in the 20s or 30s. And he sort of brought it back. I think it was the late 60s. You, you think about that there's been relatively no new compounds have been widely disseminated in the psychedelic space. And what we're going to see in over the next five years is some of the most exciting compounds coming online. You know, my view, again, is that none of those compounds are going to fix people per se. There's going to be no silver bullets. They're going to be, they might be shorter acting. They might take away the stomach pain. You know, they might be more targeted for certain um, situations, but they're not going to be panaceas. And so, you know, what, what I see today is an industry that is too homogeneous in its thinking and too focused on making money. And what I really hope, and the only way we're going to succeed, is to really begin to pivot our industry into an industry that's more focused on healing and more focused on accessibility, more diversity, and bringing in you know, wider communities into, um, into the conversation. What do I think needs to happen today? But then we can, you know, is we need to see more partnerships of mission-aligned companies that could easily view themselves as competitors collaborating in ways that make sense for both parties. We need to have more companies like ours focused on margin as well as mission or mission as well as margin. So not just trying to maximize income all the time, but really thinking about our social impact. And I think if if we accomplish those two things, we're going to be able to move this industry to a place where it's embraced by Main Street. But if we don't start making some improvements in terms of elevating the conversation and what we're trying to do, we're going to find where the way cannabis found itself, where in 1977, we had 11 states which had decriminalized cannabis. And by 1980, we're in the middle of the drug war. And a lot of people forget that in cannabis, we had this opportunity. My uncle ended up being sentenced to 10 years in jail for cannabis. Um, And so this is very personal to me that we sometimes in the psychedelics industry sort of think that we have the the wave of history on our side. And in fact, you know, we have not won this this battle at all. And I'd imagine, uh, you know, going toe to toe with the DEA over say a native American church in in South Florida is probably a good way to move the needle a little bit as well. So Juan Pablo, thank you so much for, for joining us for, from, from Marrakesh. Thank you for being a partner in field trip and helping us, you know, create field trip at home and, 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 and new life and, and all the great work. Um, you know, it's, it's a real pleasure and an honor to be able to sit across the virtual table from you and, and continue, a, continue consider you a, a business partner and a, and a friend. So really thank you so much. You. Enjoy your time away. And, uh, we got lots of things to talk about when you get back. So make sure you shoot me a note when you're back in town or at least back in the continent. I'll see you in Toronto. Cheers, buddy. I appreciate you. Bye-bye. The 1995 song Common People by Pulp is a scathing critique of gentrification and class tourism. Although the song's lyrics touch on a number of subjects, one line in particular has always stood out to me. It goes something like, everyone hates a tourist who thinks it's all such a laugh. And I say this because when I first met Juan Pablo and the team at New Life, My sense was that they were just a bunch of slick entrepreneurs who were trading in on a massive trend. 
tourists. As I've had a chance to get to know them over the last year though, that attitude has evolved into one of respect and admiration for what they're doing. Now, after this particular conversation on the podcast, it's gone a step further to cause me to realize that at least between JP and I, in many ways, I'm the tourist here. His knowledge and experience and embodiment of the history and the culture of psychedelic therapies is far, far deeper than mine, which is a good reminder of the old adage, judge not lest ye be judged. And as any listener to this podcast may know, the judgment and suspicion that exists in this industry is one of the biggest concerns I have about maintaining the momentum that we have going on so far. That's also why I think our partnership with New Life to create Field Trip at Home is that much more meaningful. Not only will it expand access and create what I think will be real powerful impact for people, it's also a powerful reminder of how prejudices can give way to friendships and can give way to deep, meaningful partnerships that, in the words of my friend Keith Ferrazzi, can co-elevate not just business, but society as a whole. On that note, I recently saw some discussion on Twitter involving a field tripping guest and current field trip advisor, Matt Johnson, who expressed concern in a Business Insider article about the dangers of people thinking that psychedelics could save the world. And that all we can really safely say is that psychedelics are going to have an impact on how we treat mental health. But you just have to look at the very next line in common people to understand why it's certainly going to be so much more. That line goes, you'll never understand how it feels to live your life with no meaning or control. I will stand here and declare that if you give everyone a real sense of meaning as psychedelics are very well equipped to do, you're going to change the world for the better. I'll stand here every day and go to bat for that belief. I've bet my career on it. I've bet my reputation on it and will continue to do so. As a quick reminder, please follow, rate, and review our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producer is Conrad Page, and associate producers are Macy Baker and Alex Sherman. Special thanks to our production partner, Quill. And of course, many thanks to Juan Pablo Capello for joining us today. To learn more about our Field Trip at Home program, visit fieldtriphealth.com slash at dash home. And to learn more about New Life, visit their website, new.life. That's N-U-E dot L-I-F-E. <laughs>